This is a Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu slash library. Mary Florence Potts is our guest today. Mrs. Potts has just come from a very successful appearance at the Columbian Exposition of 1893, where she had a display of her invention in the women's building. Mrs. Botts is pleased to entertain questions from the audience after her formal presentation and to allow the attendees to handle her irons. Mrs. Potts is played by Ellie Carlson. If you have any questions for Ellie about developing the Mrs. Potts character or any of the other characters that she portrays, please save those until after all Mrs. Potts' questions are completed. Ellie will be happy to break character at the end to converse with you about first-person interpretation. Ladies and gentlemen, Mrs. Potts. Good morning, everyone. It's very nice to be here. Um, I've just come from the Columbian Exposition, which just closed last week, um, week and a half ago. How many of you went? Did you go to the White City? Did you see it? You're, you were too busy working and studying, I'm sure. That, uh, that is understandable. It was a fantastic, wonderful event in our city and really nation's history, the World's Fair, and it brought millions of people to, uh, to see things that they might never otherwise have seen. I was very proud to be able to be there myself with my invention. I had a small display in the women's building. There were some very unique things about the Columbian Exposition, and not the least of which being it was the very first time ever in the history of the world that there was an entire building devoted to the pursuits of women. In all other expositions that we have had all over the world and all the ones that have been held in this country, there have been occasionally rooms or pavilions or sometimes entire wings devoted to women. This was the first time there was an entire building, and I was very proud to be able to be there. Little did I realize in 1870, at the age of 19, that my small invention was going to bring me so much notoriety. It has been a very interesting several decades for me since, as a young bride in Ottumwa, Iowa, I decided that the thing I least liked about housekeeping was the weekly ironing. I prayed that if the Lord were to take me from this world, he would do so on a Monday so that I did not have to face the Tuesday chore of ironing. As many of you ladies know, it uh, can take up the entire day is incredibly arduous. It's hot, especially in the summertime. I, having lived in Iowa as a girl and then more recently in Pennsylvania, I was not certain what the summers in Chicago were going to be like, but obviously I had the opportunity this last summer to see that the heat that you face is very much like what I faced in Ottumwa, Iowa as a young bride. And the Tuesday ironing in the heat is more than anyone should have to bear, in my opinion. My first thought, which I still think is a very good one, was to convince my husband to wear wrinkled clothing. I thought that he might start a fashion. But he wasn't very keen on that notion, and the other ladies talked bad about me in church, and so I had to abandon that idea. I had a very wise teacher when I was in school as a girl, and she suggested that when you have a problem, uh, especially a very large problem, that the way to solve it is to divide it up into smaller pieces. And if one can solve one piece of a problem at a time, then put all the pieces together, you, you may, in fact, if you're fortunate and wise, have a complete solution. And so that is what I did. This, I'm going to move this table over just, oh, it wasn't even heavy, lucky me. This, obviously, is an iron. This is the sort of iron that most of us uh, started, or in the case of you younger ladies, will start housekeeping with. When I was first married, I did not receive a full set of matched irons. I was not fortunate. I got cast-offs from my mother and aunts and ladies from the, from the community. And I had one seven, and I had an eight, and I had a nine with a, with a bent handle. This object here, you see the handle has been repaired, which makes it very difficult. As you know, an iron has to be hot in order to get the clothes 
sharp and polished. You can't, uh, you can't iron clothes with a cool iron, obviously. And so the heat needs to radiate down, at the very least, into the clothing. However, I wondered why it was necessary for the heat to radiate in all directions. Because as one is ironing, what you're ironing may become crisp and polished, but you are wilted in the process. And so my first thought was to devise an iron that was only metal on the bottom end, because that was the part that needed to get hot. And I had watched my father, who was a mason, working with plaster, and I realized that plaster whereas it will retain heat, does not so much radiate heat as metal does. And so my notion was to have an iron, the top half of which was made of plaster and the bottom half of which was made of iron. We began by making the iron out of plaster and then having a foundry, a local foundry in Ottumwa, Iowa, put the iron on top of the plaster. Eventually, we came to uh, have molds made, and the mold was made out of iron and made hollow, and then the plaster was poured in later, which, of course, afforded a much, a much better result, as I'm sure you can see. So that was the first change, and I do not carry around all of my earlier attempts, although I think sometimes when I'm speaking it would be interesting for people to see the the, the uh, transition as we moved from one idea to the next. But you can use your imagination and know that we created an iron that was metal on the bottom, hollow in the center, and the top was filled with plaster. You can imagine that. The, that solved one problem. The next problem was that an iron does not cool evenly, as you know. This end, this heel end, the flat part, that some people use to set the iron down when it's not being heated, this part cools much more slowly than the actual business end of the iron that does all the work, the pointed part. Well, it seemed to me that since this is the important part of the iron, why not just have two of them? And so I devised an entirely different shape for the iron, which is pointed at both ends. That way, when one is ironing, one can easily turn it around one way or the other, and the center section is going to cool more slowly than the two ends. So, remember it's hollow. We made the metal at either end far thicker than the metal in the center. And we went through a great deal of experimentation with exactly how thick did the metal need to be in order to cool uniformly across the entire bottom surface of the iron. And what we discovered is if it was about three quarters of an inch thick in the center and the full thickness of the iron at either end with obviously the corresponding slope, if you could see it in cross section, that that would afford a completely even cooling process. And this took many, many tries over Oh, the better part of a year. It was, it was probably one of the most difficult things that we did in the, in the invention of, uh, of my improved iron. Now, the third issue is the handle. The handle of the iron, remember how I told you about my, my broken handled iron that I started housekeeping with. This, this is the article. The, the handle gets hot, as all of you ladies know. The handle gets very, very hot. And so, of course, you have to have a pad on it, just as you do when you're taking a hot pan off the stove. You have to have a pad for the iron. And these pads have to be changed frequently. And when they slip, you get a nasty burn on your hand. I'm sure you've all done that. So my first thought, remember, I was a very young and naive 19-year-old bride, was to just make pads and sew them onto the handles of all my irons. I thought that would work made these beautiful pads heavily quilted. I stitched them on. It was a lovely process. Guess what? The pads got hot, too, and I burned myself anyway. Ripped them all off, started over. Was very dejected, and visiting um, a, a group of men that were working on at the Iron Foundry, and they happened to that day to be working with woodworking tools, and I saw... They were using a plane. 
You gentlemen have used planes, I'm sure. And I noticed that their arm and hand and shoulder and wrist were all kept in perfect line and seemed very, very comfortable. They did not seem to be straining with the use back and forth motion, very similar to the ironing motion, not that different. Men's work and women's work, many similarities. And I noticed that the handle for the plane was curved. Now why should the handle for a woman's tool be straight across and, and not very welcoming to the human arm and shoulder, whereas a man's is curved and very easy to use? So I decided that my iron improvement needed to have a curved handle. Once I, once I lit on that idea, it was a very easy step to get to the next notion of, well, the handle could be wood, couldn't it? If the handle were wood and there was some sort of metal clip mechanism, my, my small boy thinks that this looks like a parrot's jaw, the way the clip mechanism works. It does rather, doesn't it? Like a big bird taking a seed, sort of. Well, that was the idea, that if this metal part attached to the iron, then it would come off. Now, this gives us yet another solution because one only needs one handle. The irons themselves can be completely interchangeable if you have one handle. So, those were the three or, depending on how one looks at it, four improvements that I made with the uh, improved cold-handled sat iron over the original sat iron that we had all been using for many, many, many years. Once having come up with all of these solutions, as my teacher taught me, break it up into small pieces, solve the problem, put it all back together, I really felt that we were ready to produce the article. And I knew um, enough about business that I realized that no manufacturing company was going to take this invention seriously unless it had what? What does an invention need to have? A patent. Very good. Thank you. I needed to get a patent. Well, I rode away to Washington, D.C., where the patent office is, and I inquired, because I did not know the answer, if a woman would be permitted to get a patent the same as a man. I did not know if I would have to patent my invention under my, under my husband or perhaps my father's name. I was very pleased to discover that, yes, a woman could indeed receive a patent from the United States government. And, in fact, I was by no means the very first woman to do so. Many women before me had patented their inventions, which gave me great courage to continue on. And so... In May of 1870, I, Mary Florence Potts of Ottumwa, Iowa, received United States Patent 103501 for the improved cold-handled sat iron. Now that I had patent papers, I could get a manufacturing company to take my iron seriously. And as I was in Ottumwa, Iowa, and there was quite a bit of industry in Ottumwa at that time, it was a, it was a very busy place, I was able to contract for a percentage of my patent rights with a company that was willing to produce my irons in bulk. They would make many, many of them so that they could be readily available and sold. This did not work out the way I wanted it to because sadly, the men who were running the, uh, and I should emphasize the men who were running said company, had done something rather ill-advised earlier in their business careers and had a judgment against them. And so when they were attempting to produce my irons and making a profit from them, those profits were enjoined by the parties that had the injunction against them prior. So that would not work. In that legal process, I was able to get my patent rights back. At that time, in about 1870, late 1871, early 1872, the seat of metal manufacturing in the United States of America was in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. If you wanted to make something out of metal at that time, you made it in Pennsylvania, specifically in Philadelphia and in some of the surrounding communities also in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. This was really the seat of where metal work was happening. So I picked up my small family and we moved to Pennsylvania. 
Now, something I should mention, which may impact some of the young ladies in the audience, and certainly uh, you could take a lesson from this, just because, because one is a married woman does not necessarily mean that one can stop working and fending for herself. Because my husband was a veteran of the war and never completely recovered from his injuries. Ergo, I was the breadwinner of our family. And it fell upon me and my invention to be able to support and sustain us. Therefore, moving to Pennsylvania was a difficult and painful decision because I was leaving my family, but it also was a way for us to continue to support ourselves because my invention had some, um, some appeal and there would be ways to sell it and, and actually make money. So when I went to Pennsylvania, I visited with several different concerns, including the Enterprise Manufacturing Company and the American Machine Company. And in combination with them, they began to manufacture my irons in earnest because they were both very large concerns and they had a way not only to manufacture the metal parts, but also because the Enterprising Manufacturing Company makes so many different kinds of things, they also had the woodworkers that could manufacture the wooden parts. And I have some wonderful photographs of the inside of the factory where you can see where they were actually doing all of this work. So there we were in Philadelphia making the irons and uh, selling, oh, and in the, in, by 1872, 1873, they were actually producing and selling about 300,000 Mrs. Potts irons per year. In fact, in the first six years of production, well over one million, nearly two million Mrs. Potts irons were sold in the United States and overseas. And so it was very much a going concern and things were going very well. Now, you all know what happened in 1876 in Philadelphia. It was the Centennial Exposition. It was a World's Fair, uh, very similar, although in my opinion far inferior, to the one that you just hosted here in Chicago. And the World's Fair was in Philadelphia that year. And the Enterprise Manufacturing Company set me up in a nice little booth with my irons. And I spoke to the people that passed by. And it was very fortunate and very intelligent on the part of the Enterprise Manufacturing Company because what they did was they had a drummer, a salesman, sitting just right around the corner, just out of eye shot of where I was speaking to people. So a couple would approach, and I would visit with the wife, and I would visit with the husband, and I would attempt to ascertain the size of his pocketbook, if I possibly could, as to whether or not he would be able, right there on the spot, to purchase a set of irons for his deserving wife. And in many cases, the visitors to the fair were of means, and they were able to do that. And instead of sending them home with a trade card and encouraging them to visit their local merchant, I was able to say, well, um, sir, Mr. Butler from the Enterprise Manufacturing Company is sitting just over there and on his table and underneath it, he has several sets of Mrs. Potts irons that you can take home with you now. An improvement on that idea happened just this last year at the Columbian Exposition where we had a service whereby when someone purchased a set of the irons actually at the fair, we had them wrapped up and we held them with your name on them until you had done all of the visiting of the fair you possibly wanted to do and then you could come back to the women's building, come to the Mrs. Potts booth and pick up your irons and take them home so you didn't have to carry them all over the fair with you. I think that's a very good idea. We hadn't thought of that quite yet in Philadelphia, but we, we've been doing this for a long time now. So what we did was we sold a lot of irons at the fair, and we also spread the word. I passed out my trade cards, which I have some of them, them here, and you can certainly all have one if you, if you would like. I passed out my trade cards, and we were able to um, get irons like this into the hands of deserving women who had been using these awful old things that nobody wants and nobody needs. And so um, we continued with that plan after the fair closed because every state in the United States has a fair. 
and many counties have fairs, and it really wasn't that difficult a thing to put me and Mr. Butler or one of the other drummers on a train and send us off to the various places that the fairs were. And that is what I have been doing for the past nearly 25 years, is traveling around to, uh, to um, assemblies such as this, to county fairs, to state fairs, and talking about my, about my invention. Now, what happened um, after the fair and several years after that is that there, the, the Mrs. Potts-Satirons were so successful because, frankly, as, as you can easily see, they're, they're a vast improvement over what women had been using for, for many, many, many years. And so there were so many of them, and they were so popular that uh, the Enterprise Manufacturing Company was making tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on it. However, they didn't see fit to share uh, a substantial portion of those profits with Mrs. Potts. And if you look very carefully at the front of the iron, it clearly says Mrs. Potts on the front. And I am Mrs. Potts. And they were hiding the books from me. And so, having once discovered that all of these hundreds of thousands of irons were going out, and I knew how much they sold for, and I knew roughly what the materials cost and how much the laborers were being paid because, you see, I lived right around the corner from the factory and I was in that factory every single day if I was not out traveling doing speaking engagements. And I figured out that they owed me and my family a considerable sum of money. So what does one do when one has unfair treatment in this country? One lobbies Congress, doesn't one? And so I did. And in 1885, I lobbied the United States Congress to reassign me my patent rights, in effect taking away all rights to the Mrs. Potts irons from both the Enterprise Manufacturing Company and the American Machine Company. I got my patent rights back, and I was able to get a, a judgment against the uh, Enterprise Manufacturing Company and the Amer American Machine Company for a substantial sum of money, which enabled me to fairly much do whatever I cared to do for the rest of my days. And so, since there is very little, if no danger whatsoever, of anyone stealing the idea for the Mrs. Potts iron because everyone knows it as a Mrs. Potts iron. It is a Mrs. Potts iron. It's never going to be anything else. And so even if another company makes them, they can't fool anyone. It's obviously a Mrs. Potts iron. So um, according to the, the paperwork from the Congress, I'm very protected in terms of anything like this ever happening again. But I also made a very valid point to the men of the Enterprise Manufacturing Company that I was not going to turn a blind eye to them thinking that a woman can't read a bookkeeper sheet. And I was able to get them to reimburse me for the amount of money, or very nearly the amount of money, that I would have been paid on an annual basis all of the years that they were selling the irons. And so we continue to have a good and cordial relationship. And I also have my own company now. Um, uh, Mrs. Potts has her own company. And uh, that is located in Camden, New Jersey. And we are continuing to manufacture the Mrs. Potts irons and some of my other developments um, as, um, uh, as we go forward because I have um, patented several improvements to the iron, including one that hasn't been granted yet, but it was just filed in June of this year, um, while I was at the fair, I was living in Austin, Illinois, and I filed an improvement on my patent. And it has to do with, it's a very minor improvement. It has to do with the way in which the clip works. The clip for the handle is a bar of metal, and it needs to be configured in a certain particular way and be of a certain um, uh, tensile strength of metal so that it doesn't break. Because if it breaks, what will happen? the iron will fall on your toe. I bet you wonder how I know this. So I patented an improvement on the iron just this last year, and I, I have every reason to believe that it will be granted. I think that, uh, that that will be the next thing. And then I'm looking into some other improvements. We've certainly made a lot of different sorts of Mrs. Potts irons over the years of different shapes with different types of ends, different weights. There's even a lovely set that they originally intended for little girls 
to use as a toy for their dolly's clothes. But many, many women, and they're, they're about this big. I wish I had one to show you. They're about, oh, perhaps three and a half to four inches long, and they weigh well under a pound. Mrs. Potts Irons weigh between two and five pounds each. And these ladies have written me in. These are very, very useful for fine and delicate laces and doilies and handkerchiefs. And grown women who don't have any little girls at home at all are buying them the toy ones because they're completely operable. They work exactly the way the, uh, the grown-up size Mrs. Potts iron works, and people are buying them and using them to iron their delicates, which I think is a, is a lovely plan. I, um, I'm often asked if I have any advice for people, which I find rather strange because I never set out in my life to uh, do anything that would make me worthy of giving advice to anyone. But I think if I had to give advice, it would be if you have an idea and you think you can solve a problem that you have, don't give up. Keep at it. Because there are a lot of people in the world with a lot of really good ideas, and most of them never do anything at all about it. And an idea doesn't translate into anything without adding hard work and perseverance and paperwork, filing, for instance, the patent application, and working with a company that can make your idea be real in the world. And so don't, don't just sit and talk about the wonderful idea. Actually go out and produce it. And when I was able to do that, my goal was that someday this, I say as I'm holding up the old-fashioned iron, this will become a doorstop. And I think it's well on its way to being a doorstop, and that was my intention. So I'm sure all of you have in your minds ideas, and all I can say is go out and make them happen, because that really is the only way to make an impact, and then someday somebody will be asking you for advice. I would like to take a minute now to talk about the Columbian Exposition because it did just finish here and I know many of you did not raise your hands, you were unable to attend. I'm sure you were very busy with, uh, with your studies and with, uh, and with work that your mothers and fathers had for you at home. But I think it's very interesting the things that we learned about women and about women in our society because of the World's Fair and because specifically because of Mrs. Palmer. Um, Mrs. Potter Palmer was the chairwoman of the women's building, and she worked for years and years on the preparations for the women's building. She did not want just a women's pavilion. She wanted an actual full building. It was designed by a female architect. It was appointed by women. There were all manner of women's industries presented in the women's building. And at the point at which the United States Congress granted the money to build the building, Mrs. Palmer gave a wonderful speech, which I have a little bit of here. She said, even more important than the discovery of Columbus, which we are gathered here to celebrate, is the fact that the general government has just discovered women, which I thought was very interesting. Um, a large percentage of the women's billion building is devoted to industry. And people today, in 1893, think of industry as being a man's pursuit. And this is an excerpt from Mrs. Palmer's speech, and I've, I've heard her give this speech. She is a much better and more accomplished public speaker than, than am I. But it is, a, it is a wonderful testament to not only the research that she did, but also pointing out to people things that we don't generally think about. It will be shown that women among all the primitive people were the originators of most of the industrial arts. And it was not until these became lucrative that they were appropriated by men and women pushed aside. While man, the protector, was engaged in fishing or the chase, women constructed the rude semblance of a home. She dressed and cooked the game and later ground the grain between the stones and prepared it for bread. She cured and dressed the skins of animals and fashioned them awkwardly into garments. Impelled by the necessity for its use, she invented the needle and twisted the fibers of plants into thread. She invented the shuttle and used it in weaving textile fabrics in which were often mingled feathers, wool, and down, which contributed to the beauty and warmth of the fabric. 
She was the first potter and molded clay into jars and other utensils for domestic purposes, drying them in the sun. She originated basket making and invented such an infinite variety of beautiful forms and decoration as to put shame to modern products. She learned to ornament these articles of primitive construction by weaving feathers of birds. Now these types of, of art are actually, were actually presented in the women's building by women from cultures all over the world that are still practicing these types of, of crafts in their daily lives. And that was a fascinating thing that if it weren't for Mrs. Palmer, we would not have been able to see last summer. A special attention will be called to these early inventions of women by means of an ethnological display which will be made in the women's building. And, and it was, and it was quite fascinating. There were um, a great number of people who came to the women's building and were astonished to meet me because they didn't know, as I didn't know when I patented my, my first invention, they didn't know that a woman could get a patent. They didn't know that a woman could run a business by herself. They didn't know that women could be carpenters, of which there were some at the women's building, and uh, stained glass window craftswomen and painters, and they were all represented in the women's building, and they were, there were women that were engineers who had built gigantic machines and patented them, and all of these were represented in the women's building. Mrs. Palmer uh, spent some research and uh, actually investigated all of the various pursuits that women are doing today in 1893, and she had that in her report. If in the United States the number of breadwinners among women is smaller than among European nations, it is because there is less need for them to earn their bread, though many do so from choice. On the other hand, there is no country in the world where the avocations of women are so diversified or so largely represented in commercial and professional circles. According to recent data, there are nearly three million women and girls who are self-supporting. I myself would be one of that three million, many of them contributing to the support of others, as did I and do I continue to do, and with at least an equal number who provide in part for their own maintenance. Of these, more than 14,000 are at the head of business firms, such as Mrs. Potts, and conduct a business of their own, and 26,000 are employed as clerks and bookkeepers. Of school te teachers, there are 155,000. Of teachers of music and professional musicians, 13,000. Of physicians and sur surgeons, 2,400. And of chemists and pharmacists, nearly 2,000. Of journalists, there are 600. Of authors known to fame, about half that number, while more than 200 are practicing lawyers or architects. But most remarkable of all is the number engaged in farming, planting, and stock raising, in which pursuits no less than 59,000 women are represented. Such is the part that woman plays in the great workshop of our Western Republic as, with the lapse of years, she rises slowly but surely toward the higher plane of her destiny. Now, I think all of those statistics are most edifying, and we have Mrs. Palmer to thank for putting all of that information together so that I could share it with you. I would be more than happy to answer questions from you about my invention, about producing a patent, about how hot the summers are in Ottumwa, Iowa, about anything else that you would be interested in asking if we could open it up to discussion. Mr. Fulton, would that be acceptable to you, sir? Of course. Please don't be shy. Yes, sir. Did you have to No, I did not have to pay money for it. That's a very good question. Um, the, because I was well enough known by the time uh, Mrs. Palmer started planning the fair, there were quite a few ladies that were fairly well-known inventors and craftswomen, and we were well enough known that we were just merely asked if we would attend. And also, probably... <laughs> I would imagine she had the list from the last World's Fair that was held in the United States, and she was able to ascertain that I was still very much in business, and so she invited me to come. Another question? Oh, I'm sure Mr. Fulton has some questions. Oh, over there. There. Ladies first. Oh, well... We worked on the actual patent model for oh, probably about a year off and on. Uh, my husband often complained that I spent more time attempting to improve the iron than I did actually ironing, which was the general idea, although I didn't want to admit that to him at the time. And then from the time we filed the papers until the patent was actually granted was just a few months. 
it, it was a very short process there. Extremely efficient in Washington, D.C. Now, Mr. Fulton, it's your turn. Oh, yes. Um, outside of the Women's Building, are there other highlights from Chicago that you can enjoy in your visit Is anyone afraid of heights? Then I would not recommend riding the Ferris wheel. The Ferris wheel is perhaps the most magnificent thing at the fair. And uh, I certainly think that, uh, that it would behoove the fair officials to move it to another place where it could continue to delight and in some cases frighten people. This young lady in the front row who raised her hand should not go on the Ferris wheel. It's very, very tall. Are there any other questions? Yes. They were, they were making a substantial profit on uh, my invention. And because I had assigned the patent rights to them, legally, uh, technically, they were not required um, by any contractual obligation with me uh, to share the profits, which was a supreme injustice. And because I didn't have any, any legal recourse in the courts in order to say, well, here you see, Your Honor, I have a document that clearly states that this percentage of the profits made are supposed to be passed directly to me, um, then I didn't really have any other recourse but to petition Congress because in, order, in, in petitioning Congress, I was able to tell my entire story. I was able to talk about how the patent rights had been assigned, what sort of role I had in the company. I originally did the bookkeeping for my part of the process, but um, I was pushed out of doing the bookkeeping, and it was the point at which I was no longer seeing the books on a daily basis that I stopped receiving the payments that I, I would have been earned, that I, that I had earned. And so um, I needed to have um, a, a higher authority, as it were, than the court system because the legal documentation in the agreement did not afford a way for me to directly receive the profits from the iron. This is actually very, very common with inventors and, and I, I have to assure you it did not happen because I was a woman necessarily. It is very common for inventors to be so very excited about their idea and so thrilled when it actually becomes reality and people are buying it that they forget about the necessity to earn a living. And it, I'm not the only inventor that's ever happened to. And uh, I think if, some, if, if there were a, a manual or, a, or an instructional book for inventors, I think the first thing that should be on page one is don't forget to make some money because I think many people who are imaginative and hardworking forget that at the end of the day they have to put food on the table. So yes, what did sir. you do when you didn't have that money passed to you? What did you do? Did you do another I, I borrowed a lot of money. Originally, when we first moved to Pennsylvania, I borrowed $1,000 from my father, which I was able to pay back to him in increments as... Um, uh, as the irons were, were being produced. Uh, what, what generally happens with the assigning of a patent is that the, the company that, that purchases a percentage of, of your patent, and, and generally if you're smart, you keep a percentage of it for yourself, what they do is they give you a, a lump sum of, of funds. Um, in, in my case, one of the sums was $800. They gave me $800. I assigned them a percentage of the patent rights, and then any profits then became theirs because, in effect, I had received my money at the beginning. And so, when it when it started to be because they're they're taking the risk on producing the the product, and I was able to get paid at the beginning. But what happened was the product was so much more successful than even I had imagined that we were able to, um, to turn a, a considerable profit. And that's the point at which the disparity became obvious. And how much do one of your irons cost? Oh, um, well, it depends on what the plating is. 
The, uh, the nickel-plated ones are $1.96 the set. That's three irons and one handle. And the regular polished ones without the nickel plating are $1.75 the set. Is that with the new improved handle? Or? Yes, that's my iron. Yes. Oh, yes, that's the most recent pricing structure. Yes, the, what, what it would have cost you two weeks ago. If you, now, if you buy an iron through, um, through, for instance, the Sears or the Montgomery Wards catalog, you will pay shipping. And irons have some weight to them, ladies and gentlemen. So you will be paying some, some shipping charges. So you're better off to buy it directly from a merchant who already has it in their shop. And there will be a little bit of profit for him or her as well. Um, th that actually is the reason that a lot of people enjoy coming to hear me speak because I bring the drummers with me and we have the irons. Um, this photograph, and there are so many of you, I can't really pass this around, but I want you to notice later, this is the room where the blanks are. And this is the irons before the handles have been attached. And I've never sat and counted all of these, but there are probably well over 10,000 of them just in this room at the Enterprise Manufacturing Company. Yes, sir, in the back. How much resistance was I met with in the general public about being a female patent owner? Did I get that right? Um, very little. You would be surprised. I think if I had invented a new kind of plow or tractor or wood plane to make something smaller and I were attempting to sell it to men, I would have met with more resistance. I believe because I was in um, an area of work that is considered to be almost exclusively female. I suppose there are some male household servants who might do some ironing, but for the most part, bachelors never do their own ironing, and certainly married men would, would never do their own ironing. So I was speaking uh, to women, and because of that, I think I was able to... Um, not make any of the men uncomfortable because I could speak uh, a language that their wives understood. And um, it's, it's actually, I think, a bit of an advantage occasionally to be a woman because one can think like a man, but it doesn't show on the outside, does it? And so that helps because I could be a good businesswoman and be uh, wise in my business dealings, but not intimidate anyone with that because it doesn't show on the outside. I think sometimes women inventors are a little luckier that way. Yes, sir? How does your husband feel about being a breadwinner? Well, he didn't really have much of a choice now, did he? Uh, my husband served in the Navy, and he was injured during the war, and he was, for the most part, bedridden. Uh, during most of our married years. As a matter of fact, he has uh, his own patent for um, a particular kind of bed spring, which he was able to, to um, envision because of his injuries and spending so much time not being, being able to be mobile. Uh, he wasn't able to work at, um, at any of the um, uh, more typical masculine pursuits, and so he didn't really have much choice. He was always very supportive. Um, he was a very intelligent man and very good at, uh, he, he helped me with the drawings for my patents and, and helped me with the wording for things. And he was very uh, helpful in, in the way that he could be considering his, um, his inability to walk about. And so that was uh, um, perhaps, and if I had had an able-bodied husband, would I have done everything that I did? Perhaps not. Um, I think that challenges that are put in our path sometimes inspire us to do things that we might not otherwise do. So maybe it was a blessing in disguise that, that I had a, a husband who was a veteran. I'm not sure. Yes? Do you still do your own ironing? Or do you <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> I, I, I was fortunate to have a daughter who is, uh, who is now up and grown, 
so she is no longer helping me with my ironing. But no, I, uh, of course, if I'm traveling and have to wash out a few things, of course I will. I will do for myself. I'm, I'm certainly not. Uh, I'm certainly not above that. But uh, no, I, uh, I uh, removed ironing from my weekly chores at the very first possible opportunity, madam. <laughs> As I'm sure most smart women attempt to do. Although there are ladies who enjoy to iron. It, it, it's, uh, it's all a matter of taste, I suppose. Did I see another question over there? Yes, ma'am. Well, I think every woman who um, who who has children um, is always torn between the various things she's doing. I don't think it matters if you're uh, helping to run a farm, as my mother did, or you're uh, helping to run a store, as many shopkeepers' wives, um, and in some cases many ladies who are, who are widowed are running shops. And um, children are fairly adaptable, and they can come along with you and be of use and be helpful. And certainly, um, once they are old enough to be in school, there's time during the day when the children are in school. I had, um, I have a son and a daughter, and um, that I think certainly if I had had 10 or 12 children, as some women do, it would have been very difficult to do. But, um, but think of the amount of ironing I would have had to do in that case. I, I would not have had time to, um, to invent the uh, improvement on my iron. No, I think my children were, uh, were an asset, not a hindrance, I, I would have to say. Are there any other questions? Okay. Thank you very much. I can step out of character now if you want me to. Because that's always fun. Okay. You can go ahead and tell them. What's up? You can tell them if you want to. I don't care. Ellie, <laughs> <laughs> not used to him at a microphone. <laughs> yeah, a little. Uh, I, I do a little microphone shy, I guess. Well, Mrs. Potts, uh, I guess, has left us, and uh, Ellie Carlson would be happy to to take questions about uh, first person interpretation. Thank you so much. Or anything else. Or anything else, for that matter. <laughs> now this is when it gets really fun. So, what do you want to know about putting on a corset and a petticoat to make a living? <laughs> oh come on! Yes, I made them. Yes, yes. No, not at all. Yes. Why do I do it? Oh, that's a really interesting. What, what do you do for a living? What's your job? Oh, you're a student. Okay. What are you studying to do? To be a carpenter. Okay. Well, um, I'm a museum curator, and I, uh, uh, my undergraduate degree is in history. My master's is in historical administration and museum studies, which is a terminal master's for people who work in museums. That's the degree that most of us have. And um, in the course of working in museums, I've worked at a lot of living history sites. And I have come to believe extremely strongly that um, costumed living history, first-person interpretation, that's what this is called when you, you, when you pretend to be someone from another era. First-person interpretation is the closest we will ever come to a time machine. And when I can show people what the past felt like, um, I do historic cooking classes in costume, I can show them what it tasted and smelled like, um, I'm really able to give them a complete historical experience. And that's why, um, that's why I do this. Um, I do get paid occasionally uh, for doing this, and uh, and I am actually an inventor. Believe it or not, I have a patent pending. And um, yeah, crazy, right? Um, and I've been doing this as pot for about 15 years, but I only have been an inventor for about two and a half years. And I've learned a whole lot about Mrs. Potts that I didn't really know before, kind of spiritually, having now I have an invention. I invented a software system 
And because it's a brand new business, I have to have some way to support the business. So believe it or not, I put on a corset and a petticoat and pretend to be people from the 19th century to fund a 21st century software system. Absolutely true. Uh, kind of weird, but true. Um, but that's why I do it. I do it because of my, my avocation of, of being a museum curator and a historian. And also, I did bring trade cards. Oh, okay. Those are my trade cards. Um, and also, um, because I have to make a living doing something, and um, this has a lot of flexibility, and I can keep being an inventor. Yes? What other people do you like to Oh. Like, is that the only person? No, I do a lot of, I do a lot of people. Um, it's actually on my website. I have a website. These are my cards. Um, I portray Mrs. Potts. I portray a woman named Isabella Hoffman, who was not a real person. I actually made her up. But I do something called Little Schoolhouse on the Prairie. I do an 1858 um, school, and uh, I portray Miss Hoffman, who's a who's a spinster school teacher, and she's really interesting to do. If you if you go on my website and you go on the FAQs, one of my FAQs is who's your favorite character, and my favorite character. Oh, Mrs. Possibly Nabby. My favorite character is really the school teacher because she's my age, obviously. I can't change how old I am. And she's a spinster school teacher. And so there are a lot of, of social lessons that I can teach adults. I mean, I can teach the kids reading, writing, and arithmetic. But when adults come to see Miss Hoffman, I can teach a lot about what it would have meant to be a single woman in the 1850s. Now, Mrs. Potts didn't die until 1922. And so she was a... Uh, a widow of education. By this time, her husband's dead. He's already dead by now. Um, but um, she had a lot more opportunity than Isabella Hoffman had. And so when I do her, I can talk about, you know, if you were a Spencer school teacher, you had to live in someone else's house, and you were beholden to the community for your support. And if, you know, you did something they didn't like, then you could be out on your ear. And it, it's, it's really kind of interesting. And I also do a woman named Anita Willis-Burnham, who was a real person. And I portray her in the 1950s. She was an artist. And she um, was kind of in the social realist school. And she um, lived in Winnetka, Illinois. And she lived in the log house that's in Winnetka, which is part of the Winnetka Historical Society's properties. And I portray Anita. And I don't like Anita very much. I don't like her at all. Uh, and I also teach um, cooking classes in costume, 1850, 1900, 1930, and 1950 in costume. And um, on my website, any day now, as soon as I get it up, there's video of me as um, the character Miss Ellie that I do for my 1850s cooking classes. I was videoed at the Green City Market this summer, and um, there's big video and all these slides and things, but we're having trouble getting it into flash and getting it on the website. And, I'm not sure how many megabytes I have, and it's, it's a disaster. But eventually, it'll be. If you check my website in a couple of weeks, it'll probably be up there. Any more? Yes. Just do it more. Um, I started taking children's theater classes when I was 10, and um, the I'm telling you all this stuff is on my website. The, the best advice I ever got was um, the lady I took children's theater from was named Temmie Gilbert, and she was actually an Emmy Award-winning director. Um, there's nobody out here who's old enough to remember, but she directed the TV show The Magic Door, which was um, on public television. It was a Jewish children's um, television program um, when I was a little girl. And Temmie was my, was my drama coach. And Temmie said... In the, before we go on stage, she says, in the audience tonight, there's somebody who's seeing theater for the first time and someone who's seeing theater for the last time. You play to those two people and forget about everybody else. And I thought that was excellent advice. It also makes you feel a whole lot better if you show up to speak and there are five people there. A lot of speakers get very dejected. And they're like, oh, there was such a bad turnout. And I'm like, never mind. Those five people had a fabulous time. It doesn't matter that there were only five. Because I'm only playing to two of you anyway. So, <laughs> what do I care? That's three extra, right? <laughs> yes. Do you need a degree to do what you're doing? Do I need a degree to do what I'm doing? Oh, I'm sure not. Um, am I glad I have one? Yeah. Um, I think, oh boy, that's a really interesting question. There are a lot of people who do first-person interpretation who come at it from, from the reenacting side, and a lot of reenactors don't have formal history training. The danger, 
The danger of that is you might do something terribly, terribly wrong and think that it's right, um, but historians do that all the time anyway. Um, a PhD in history is defined as the unearthing of bones from one graveyard and burying them in another. So, you know, I'm not necessarily saying that education is the only way to get to this point. Um, I don't know that I would do the same characters that I do if I hadn't had formal training and worked in so many museums, but I'm sure I would be doing somebody. Yes? Can you tell us about the research process a little bit and how do you gauge Accuracy, whatever that is. Um, well, I'm a, I'm a big one for original source materials. I, um, I've been to New Jersey. I've seen Mrs. Potts' probate records. I've seen her last will. Um, I did all the research for, um, you know, how old she was and who her children were and who her husband was with, with census records. Um, there have been very, very few articles written about Mrs. Potts, just a few. Um, actually, if you Google Mrs. Potts, you get a picture of me, believe it or not. I know, it's crazy. It's totally crazy. I know. I know. It's, it's when the, first time I, I, the first time I realized that that happened, I just totally freaked. But um, I did a presentation for the International Sad Iron Collector Society. Yes, I know. Talk about a subgroup, folks. Do you think the truckies are strange? Oh, boy. Um, there's this wonderful sociologist who wrote this book called Who Are You People? I don't know if you've ever if you've ever seen it. It should be assigned reading for everyone. You should all like go instantly out and buy a copy. But it's about subcultures in the United States and um, how the subcultures become what they're like. It's like like she she went and interviewed the furry folk and you know the furry people dressed like animals and um, you know about those people, right? Right, you know. Do you, know, do you know what their characters are called? The, the furry folks, do you know what their characters are called? It's called a fursona. No lie, I'm not making this up. I'm not making this up. It's absolutely true. The person you dress up as calls your fursona. So anyway, so she interviewed all these people. So the sad iron collectors collect Mrs. Potts irons, okay? And about, I don't know, 12 years ago, they had their national meeting in Naperville, and they hired me to speak. And, uh, and that was fine, and they, they made like this big production of it. They hid me. I had to sneak into the hotel in my modern clothes, which is how I came here. I did not um, be in your parking lot like this. Um, although I have a funny story about that. So anyway, I, um, I was hidden, like, back in the cafeteria, you know, back, like, in the, in the restaurant part. They had this big banquet hall. They hid me. And then when they, you know, finished their meeting, they announced that there was a special guest. They had the actual patent model. They actually had it. I have a picture of it. They actually had it there. They, they borrowed it from the museum that owns it. And it was under a big sheet, like a statue. You know, they unveiled it. And I walked out, and there were hundreds of people, these big eight-people eight tables, hundreds of people. And I walked out, and the gasp went up because all of these people knew who I was. Now, that's frightening. They went, oh, my God, it's Mrs. Potts, it's Mrs. Potts. Oh, look, it's Mrs. Potts. Oh, Mrs. Potts. Seriously. So, so I did my thing, and this was years ago, so I did a different costume because when I started doing her, I did her in the 1880s because I actually did look a lot more like this when I started doing her because I was younger. Um, so as Mrs. Potts has gotten older, I have had to get older and have to, unfortunately, she was at the Columbia Exposition. Yay! And I'm the right age to be her and then so, but in the, when I started doing her, I was about that age. So um, I did my whole thing, and they were just transfixed. I mean, you guys were a great audience, but these guys were just like on the edge of their seats. They couldn't, it was like meeting a famous person for them. They, they were so geeked out. It was so funny. So um, when I finished, I got a standing ovation. I've been doing theater since I was 10 years old. I have not called my mother. I'm like, I got a standing ovation. I don't think you've ever gotten a standing ovation before. I was like, I know. It was amazing. So, yeah, these people were crazy. When I developed the character, I was working at Vulcan and Heritage Farm, and we had these irons in reproduction, and they said Mrs. Potts sat iron. And the, um, the person who was my boss said, do you think Mrs. Potts was a real person? I said, I don't know. Let's find out. So I started researching her, and I discovered that not only was she a, was a real person, but she was a fascinating person. I mean, everything I told you about her is absolutely true. She did all of this pretty much all by herself with this husband who was in bed the whole time. And another thing, her husband was 16 years older than her. Now, she was cute. What? What? You know, I don't get it. I, I'm still 
why that girl married that man. I do not know. I can't figure it out. So I started researching Mrs. Cox, and I, and I decided that I really wanted to do her, and I could do her in the 1880s and do the costume whole thing. And then a friend of mine um, told me in a meeting that she had a picture of her. She had a trade card in her collection. Well, I was really scared, because what if she'd been a tall, thin blonde with blue eyes? I'd have been screwed. There would have been no way I could have been Mrs. Potts. But when the picture came, it gets even better. This is what she looks like in the 1890s. Not bad, right? Get my hair down. Um, so I was really happy. I'm like, she had brown hair, she had brown eyes, she was pale. You know, I, I was good. You know, it was okay. So, um, so I started doing Mrs. Potts. And I've done her for all kinds of stuff. I've done her for... Um, I do her a lot in February for, like, Women's History. February 15th and March 15th is, like, Women's History Month. I'll do it. Um, I've done stuff for when they, when um, a museum will sometimes do, like, an exhibit of patent models, and I do, like, a, an inventor's thing. I'll do her for that. Um, but I did. I've, I've been to Ottumwa, Iowa, where she was from. I've been to the house, not the house she lived in when she died, because she lived in New Jersey with her son when she died, but um, I've been to the house that's around the corner from the Enterprise Manufacturing Company. I've actually been inside the Enterprise Manufacturing Company. It still exists. Um, guess who owns the Enterprise Manufacturing Company now? You're never going to believe this. This is a riot. Proctor Silex. What does Proctor Silex make? Iron. Seriously. Isn't that great? I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. Proctor Silex is actually operating in the building that used to be the Enterprise Manufacturing Company, which is kind of cool. I think that's pretty cool. Any other questions? You're all looking at the We had early, yay. <laughs> now, I was nervous about this because Mrs. Potts is usually talks for 40 minutes. And then we ask questions, and I'm like, are we going to be able to use up all the time? Oh, I was nervous. Can I ask one more question? Please. I just think it's interesting, considering a lot of people here are history, uh, in a history class, at least, um, about the truth. Do you consider when you do truth? I use the word interpretation, but what is truth in this context? So is, is it... Okay. All the way down. Skin out. It's all authentic. That's a big part of doing first-person interpretation. If I were wearing my blue jeans underneath here, you might not know, but I would know. And anybody that's had any theatrical training, you know about motivation and you know about backstory. Well, my backstory has to be that I'm really her. And I can't feel like her. I mean, I have a corset on. I'm wearing a corset. You come and hug me. It's all bones and everything. Um, I can't be her if I can't feel like her. Um, the other thing I try really hard to do, and sometimes I fail, and I'm always nervous when I'm being taped because I'm my own worst critic. I try very hard not to use words that she didn't know. Like, Mrs. Potts would never say she was geeked out about something. You know? I say that all the time. And I do that all the time. But she would never say that. Um, you have to be very careful about contractions. Contractions were considered, you know, kind of low class. And so... You know, if you're talking to your friends, you can use contractions, but I try not to use contractions with her. Um, I do not know um, what, if any, sort of regional accent she had, um, so I try not to give her one. Um, some of my characters have a little bit of an accent if I know something about them and where they were from. Um, Certainly people that do really, really serious first-person interpretation, like someone that you meet at um, Plymouth Village or Fort Snelling or Williamsburg or something like that, they work very hard to make sure that their their mannerisms and the way they walk, the way they talk. Like, I mean, I'm not wearing tennis shoes, I'm wearing boots, because if I weren't, I wouldn't feel right in a costume. I wouldn't feel like I, like I was moving like her. And I'm really mad at the dry cleaners. You see how my, my cameo is off center here? Uh, that is not intentional. I, uh, I, I just did Mrs. Cox like five days ago, and I took my um, costume to the cleaners, and I picked it up this morning. 
brought in here and I changed them. I have no idea how I got here. I'm somewhere over there. And I went to put on my blouse. Obviously, this came off and the dry cleaner sewed it back on again and she didn't know where it belonged. So it's off-center. So that has been kind of bugging me all morning that my cameo was off because it isn't a pin, it's a button. I need to get one that's a pin so I can have control. Um, but yeah, I feel like I have to be my character all the way through if I possibly can. As far as what is true, um, if I read what happened to her enough times um, over and over again, it just becomes what happened to me. And um, improv training is also really, really good because um, I had to be in Nina Willis Burnham once for four hours in a completely impromptu situation. I wasn't doing a formal presentation. I was just at the log house. The log house was open for four hours, and I was just there to be in Nina. And so I was talking to people. Um, and I'll tell you what, you play a character for four straight hours completely off the cuff with no formal script and no formal presentation, that is serious work. I mean, I really earned my money that day because I could not break character. I had to be her. And everything that happened to me had to be how she would react to it. And if I didn't have improv training, I never would have been able to do that. I just had to get into the zone of her. And the other thing to make it worse, and this is not anybody else's problem, mine is I hate that character. I can't stand her. And so I, I would never have been friends with her. I would have been friends with Mary Warren Clark. I think we would have gotten along fine. But I would never have been friends with Anita Willis Burnham. And I have a really hard time, you know, thinking the way she thinks because I disagree with her about so many things. And so um, I think that, you know, that that really taxes you as an actress and a historian because you got to know the backstory, you got to know the facts, but then you have to react to a new situation the way the person would have reacted. And I don't know if I do a good job of that or not, but I know it's a big challenge. You might call it as a class question, but not the only question. I like that. I think it's If anybody wants to see the irons, um, I have trade cards up here. Um, I have a couple of my cards. Um, my website is elliecarlton.net. Send me an email. Tell me you saw me. Um, there's links to podcasts of other lectures that I do. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Moraine Valley Community College Library event podcast. For more information, visit www.morainevalley.edu library.